0: dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the premiere episode of Reppin', a podcast all about representation, but you can represent a lot of things like race, gender, ideas, values, and really anything that shapes who you are. I'm Evelyn, and I've been a television producer and director for over 20 years, so I've had the great opportunity to speak with some really interesting people with incredible life experiences. I want to bring those people and their experiences to you. My goal? I want to promote understanding, inclusion, and empowerment, and to celebrate humanity together. My guests will share their thoughts and stories, and you'll gain insight towards what inspire them, challenge them, see what lessons they've learned, what they believe in and fight for, and you'll see what they represent. So my first guest is an extremely talented author. She's got two books on the New York Times bestsellers list, The Hate You Give, which was also made into a major motion picture and on the come up. So I'm excited to kick off Reppin' with the incredible Angie Thomas. Angie, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to see you. Nice to see you. So I know you're from Jackson, Mississippi, born and raised and still residing. What I didn't know was that you also have an unofficial degree in hip hop.
2: I just say that. (laughs) What is that about? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that's mainly because I know so much about hip-hop. I'm such a a hip-hop historian, and I know just so many songs, too. I I was thinking about the other day, I was like, I wonder, how many songs do I know? I think there are fewer songs that I don't know than there are songs that I do know, as far as hip-hop. I know a lot of weird facts about rappers and stuff, too, so I just feel like I I gave myself that unofficial degree. I like it. I was like, where can I sign up for that class?
1: (laughs) I wish. I'm sure there's something out there at some college, though. Yeah, but I'm sure I'd fail it, unfortunately. (laughs) Now, being in Jackson, Mississippi, what was it like growing up there? Tell me a little bit about what it was like in your neighborhood, what it was like for you as a kid.
2: Growing up in Mississippi, I didn't know things were as hard as they were in my neighborhood, specifically when I was a kid, because my mom and my grandmother shielded me from so much sheltered me from so much. And then too, my neighbors, they were like my family. And even the people who society would have told me I should have been afraid of, I wasn't. Like for instance, like the drug dealers in the neighborhood, you know, for us kids, they would get us ice cream and chips and stuff when the ice cream man came through, or they protect us when perverts came in the neighborhood, stuff like that. I grew up with an interesting view of the people who I should have been afraid of. And then the people that I shouldn't have been afraid of, like the cops. I was afraid of the cops, but I wasn't afraid of the drug dealers. So that's how I grew up. You know, that's how it was in my neighborhood in Jackson. It's the kind of place where you learn a lot and you can grow, but you also get a, a stark view of this country as a it's whole. It's so
1: interesting, the things that you're talking about, because when you have such a, I guess, in some ways, a role reversal of being afraid of police and the drug dealers in your neighborhood are the ones that are looking out for you. How did that shape you as a kid, like growing up?
2: You know, I, I grew up looking at the majority and, and seeing how they would quickly judge the people that I cared about and looking at that in a certain way and taking that and internalizing it to an extent. I think that's what drew me to hip hop so much because in hip hop, you have this attitude of me against the world. That was actually a name of a podcast, but you know, you have this whole attitude of me against the world. You often feel like the entire world is against you. And so you almost don't give a, you know what, you know what I mean? Like you you get to the point where you like, they're already not going to like the way I do things. They're not going to like me. They're making judgments about me. So why not just be me? Period. Who cares? I eventually had that mentality. And I think it carried on now into adulthood as as a writer. You know, I write from that similar lens. I write from the lens of these are the people that the world writes off. These are the people that the world criticizes, the world judges. But for me, these are the heroes of my stories. And my characters have to come from a similar place of the world is going to judge me. The world is going to make assumptions about me, but I still have to stand in my truth. So I I had to learn that early on. And I think that reflects in my writing now.
1: I would imagine that's both a really difficult lesson, but also really empowering that freedom of being Mm -hmm. like, I don't care. You know, I'm just going to do what I do and be who I am. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that contrast as a child? I mean, it
2: couldn't have been easy. You know, it it was because I thought that was the normal. Oh, okay, that's cool. And, you know, that was that was normal for me. And so I think the hard part though was the struggle and witnessing the struggles that my family had, you know, and when society was not making ways for people like us. And people in my neighborhood, all of us were struggling to some extent. And, and that was hard, feeling as if there's this big race that's happening, and every time it feels like any of us get closer to the finish line, they move the finish line. Oh God! You know yeah. that's 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 what you you have to you start to learn and even internalize as a kid that this is not a society or a country that's made for people like me to benefit. And that's a hard pill for any kid to swallow. But that's definitely, when you're a marginalized kid, that's a hard pill to swallow. Learning soon and quickly. I think all of us have those moments where we realize that we're not the ones who are supposed to succeed the way the system is set up. And and realizing that kind of at an early age of, wow, I'm a young black person in a country that doesn't even want me to make it that's hard to deal with. So it makes kids of color grow up quick. At times, it's it's a stark realization. But I was lucky in the sense that my family gave me support in the midst of that realization, understanding that I had to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a hard realization. But That didn't mean that I still wasn't going to work twice as hard.
1: What age did you sort of face this realization? And what did your family say that continued to help you overcome that? Because that's a really tough lesson, I think, for anyone at any age, let alone a kid.
2: Yeah, I think for me, it was when I was in elementary school. I want to say third or fourth grade. And I ended up transferring from the school in my neighborhood to a school for gifted kids and it was in a nice neighborhood and all of these sort of things and it was a very diverse school but it was mostly white kids and going from my school and suddenly to this school and saying oh wow at this school these kids have these kinds of books right these kids have new books they have computers we didn't have these new computers at my school in my neighborhood. Wait a minute, these kids from these very well-to-do families are coming in here with knowledge and tools that I can't afford that I wasn't given. Wait a minute, they have something that I don't, and I didn't realize that that was called privilege, right? You know, and coming to the realization too that wait. The schools in my neighborhood and even the houses in my neighborhood look a certain way, but the houses over here with these kids, wait, they're nicer. Wait a minute. You guys don't hear gunshots at night? I hear gunshots at night. You don't. And that was I think that was that moment for me going to that school when I realized there are two different worlds right here in my own city. And it's possible to live in a world unlike my own. But that was when the world expanded for me. And I remember talking to my mom about it. And I was like, why is it that they can have all these things at this school and my old classmates can't have them? Or why is it that they can have houses like this? And she just had to tell me that, yeah, they have different lives. Yeah, those kids have are coming in with different advantages than what you may have, but that does not take away from your work. Ooh. That does not take away from your values. I love your mother. This is just the world we live in and you just have to know how to define yourself and never let the material things do that. And yeah, I know that you're smart. I know that you deserve to be there just as much as anybody else. And I need you to know that you deserve to be there just as anybody else. So that that was one of those moments that it really hit me like, wow, there are two Americas and I live in the other one.
1: Regardless of what age the lessons that you sort of faced realizing it was two different worlds and it was one world that you didn't necessarily fit into immediately. That's really so hard. How did you not become like super pissed off? I mean, even though your mom is amazing and her words are nurturing and so beautiful, it must've been hard being surrounded by people on a daily basis with things that you don't have. I mean, it's hard not to get lost in wanting those things and losing sight of what your mom said, especially during those really critical teenage years where you're still trying to fit in and find yourself. I mean, how did you stay focused and actually became very empowered by it?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it was the fact that I had a family who loved me, cared about me and, and made sure I was well taken care of, even if I didn't have all of the, Stuff like that. I still, I was spoiled. (laughs) I can't lie. (laughs) But I think what what also kept me from being angry was a desire to get to a certain place in life. And my mom always fueled that desire. So when I would start talking about stuff like that, it wasn't long after that that. She would start taking me out of our neighborhood to see those other neighborhoods around town so that I could see the way that other people live. And then she would take me to the airport so that I could see that people do leave Mississippi. They get on planes and they leave. And it suddenly gave me a desire. Oh wow, I wanna get on a plane and leave. (laughs) You know? I think my desire to do to have better and then my desire to prove society wrong about people like me has fueled me. So I can't be angry about it. It just pushes me. It gives me more determination. But I'm at the point now that I don't care that this is what people would have expected and blah, blah, blah. And I'm doing it to prove them wrong. No, I'm doing it for myself, first and foremost. But growing up, I did. I had that desire of, you know what? I'm going to prove the naysayers wrong. I'm going to prove the assumptions wrong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove the stereotypes wrong. I'm going to do what I need to do to get to the point where I want to be. So in, instead of letting it
0: anger me, I, I let it fuel oh, me. That's so cool. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back.
1: I gotta say this because you can't say this enough, but Angie, you are a New York Times best-selling author. When did you discover that you had a passion for writing? And talk a little bit about the genesis of "The Hate You Give," which again is a number one New York Times best-selling book.
2: <laughs> First of all, it still amazes me that both of those books are bestsellers. I'm I'm in awe all the time of that. I still can't believe that this is my life. But I've been telling stories forever, it feels like. I remember when I was a little kid and if my mom read me bedtime stories and if I didn't like the way that they ended, I would tell her, no, mommy, let me tell you my version. This is how it should have gone. Like, I hated the way green eggs and ham ended. I hated it <laughs> as a kid. I remember being so mad that he gave in and liked green eggs and ham at the end because I was stubborn. And I'm like, no, he shouldn't. No, mommy, he shouldn't have tried it if he didn't want to try it. They shouldn't have made him try it. And then he shouldn't have still liked it, you know? And she was like, okay, then write your own version. So I got my little crayon out and I put <laughs> it in the book. Um, I still don't like green eggs and ham. I still don't like them i okay, so okay. I thought I was better than Dr. Seuss. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the so storytelling and all that, that's just always been there. But it wasn't until... I got to, well, I started thinking about college that I realized I wanted to study creative writing. And I, that was what I decided to major in for college. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized I wanted to do books, be an author. Um, I initially went in wanting to do screenwriting, but I, I fell in love with narratives and writing novels and short stories and stuff like that so I decided after well while I was in college I wrote a short story that later became The Hate U Give and it was inspired by some things I experienced myself I went to a mostly white upper-class private school for college and I lived in my neighborhood which is mostly black and poor and I found myself in two different worlds sometimes being two different people And while I was in school, a young man named Oscar Grant lost his life in Oakland, California at the hands of police brutality. And while I didn't know him personally, I took his death personally, whereas my classmates, my white classmates specifically, tried to justify why it was okay that he was killed because he was an ex-con. And so I ended up writing a short story to express myself and a professor encouraged me to turn that short story into a novel. And I didn't at first because it was so hard to write. But after a couple of years and seeing so many more Black people lose their lives in similar situations, I felt all of those emotions once again, and I decided to write. So I ended up taking that short story from college and turning it into a novel and that's how I hate to give before.
1: So what's been the feedback when you were hitting the road promoting the book and the book was out? What were you hearing from the actual readers?
2: From a lot of black kids, especially, they told me that for some of a lot of them, this was the first time they saw themselves in a book wow. or the first time they really, really saw themselves in a book or they, they thanked me for giving them this mirror to see themselves. Um, And for a lot of them, they were like, oh, Star's experience is my experience. You know, so much of it I connect with. I see myself in her so much. And for me, those are like the best reactions that and the black kids who were like, yo, I hate reading, but I read this in a day. This is dope, you know. Those are, those are the best ones for me. And then I have white kids who are like, thank you for this because it opened my eyes and, and made me realize my privilege and made me realize what microaggressions are and made me have tough conversations with my parents about police brutality and racism. Right, right. And then I've had the adults, um, especially I've had like a lot of white adults who are like, wow, this book opened my eyes wow, this book showed me what I was ignorant to. Thank you for that. I've had readers from ages eight to 90, which is crazy to me. You know, I had an eight-year-old little black boy who wrote me and said he read the book. And I was like, oh God, you know.
1: (laughs) Just a few things that you just mentioned here. Not only are you opening the eyes of privilege to people who may not be aware that they have had it, but also just getting people to read and getting them to understand both sides how did Mm -hmm. that hit you i mean a first of all it's your first book let's start with that first okay and it's on it's on it's a bestseller how did it hit you to kind of get such a wide response because it didn't stay within one demographic
2: yeah you know i think if nothing else it showed me the power of storytelling and, and the power of telling stories from our heart and being our authentic selves, even with our art. Going into this, there were conversations from some people who like, just, I don't know what, how big of an audience this may have. This may only just be something that appeals to the kids who see themselves as star. And for me, I was like, okay, that's fine. So, but to get out there and to see that it's gone into so many different homes, mm-hmm. so many different demographics, People with different religious beliefs, political beliefs, all of these things. It's shown me the power of storytelling. I hope too, though, that it's shown publishing and Hollywood that even when they're coming from a specific place and they're about a specific experience, they can still appeal to a lot of people. You know, it's okay if the majority doesn't see themselves in the story. They can still enjoy it. I mean, we, the rest of us have been forced to enjoy entertainment. that we do see ourselves in. I think white people will be okay if they don't see themselves in it. You know, they'll survive. It's all right. So we, <laughs> that we can have more diversity in art. It'll be okay. That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: But here's something I sort of wanted to get back to. Just set up who Star is in your book.
2: Yeah, Star is a 16-year-old girl who lives in a neighborhood called Garden Heights with her mom and her dad, and her two brothers, and she's the only girl. Um, she loves basketball. She loves Jordan. She loves the Fresh prints. <laughs> she attends a mostly white private high school, and she is the only Black girl in her graduating class, and she often finds herself being two different people and two very different worlds, but her struggle to be these two different people becomes harder after she's the sole witness of her childhood best friend Khalil being killed by a cop. Khalil was unarmed and what Stark does or does not say can not only change her community, but it could end her life.
1: There's some similarities with your background, obviously going to two different schools. When you started writing The Hate You Give, what kind of representation did you have in the publishing
2: world? I remember for me when I was a kid and I was, reading i could find some books about black girls but there weren't a whole lot of books about black girls and then by the time i became a teenager and i should have been reading young adult literature i wasn't because i didn't see books about people like me two big books when i was a teen were twilight and the hunger games and i don't have anything against either but i could connect with neither because i was like my mom wouldn't let me date a 300 year old vampire what the hell well maybe if he looked like really hot maybe no, evidence would have shown up at my door and she would have been like, you were born when? No, bye. You know, okay. that would have been, okay. that's not even a short story, much less a novel. <laughs> but you know, that's not to say that there weren't Black authors out there who were doing amazing work. Like you have Walter Dean Myers, you have Jacqueline Woodson, but my gatekeepers were not introducing me to these books. These weren't the books that were being pushed out there like Twilight and yeah. the Things. Yeah. When I decided to go into young adult literature and children's publishing, the big help for me was the creation of the foundation. We need diverse books. The organization they started around the same time I started working on the Hate You Give, and the the goal was that we need diverse books in children's literature, and so they championed for that, and they really put a spotlight on publishing and a, a spotlight on the lack of diversity in children's publishing. And it's really made a lot of changes. So I ended up getting a grant from them while I was working on the Hate You Give. And that grant allowed me to get a new computer. So the work that they were doing and the work that they had already put forth was such a huge help for me that I'm not sure I would be in the position I'm in right now if it wasn't for them. We just talked
1: about you not having many authors or stories that you could relate to. So when you were working on your first book, which also addressed very complicated themes. I mean,
2: what were some of the challenges
1: that you faced?
2: My biggest obstacle was myself. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky to say that my biggest obstacle was myself. It was my own fear and, and my own hesitation, but also it was looking at the landscape of children's publishing and not seeing books about Black girls yeah. um, in situations like this, especially but books about Black girls, period. Yeah. You know, so I was like, there's no way something like this can get published. So I, I was afraid and my fear actually led me to getting my agent because his agency held a question and answer session on Twitter. And I just asked if a topic like that was even appropriate for a young adult novel. And he responded and he was like, yeah, I'd like to read that. And I sent it to him. And he loved it. and signed me.
1: Nice. And so,
2: yeah, that, that's you know, Twitter's good for something, I guess. Um <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think you've done well by Twitter, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. But yeah. So it was it was myself and, and but also seeing the landscape and seeing the numbers. You know, the year I was writing a book, a study had just come out saying that there were more books featuring animals and trucks as the main characters yeah. than black kids, Asian kids, Latino kids, Native American kids combined. That is insane. It's funny to me because now we see Hollywood especially making an effort to pull more diversity in and you see stuff like a black little mermaid and people are like no Ariel can't be black okay so a lobster can talk (laughs) you know like wait wait a A mermaid can't be black but seafood can talk really (laughs)
1: It's amazing. But to not go from any writers or even any stories to look to, and you know, the hate you give isn't about like unicorns or puppies in the park. I mean, Angie, you were breaking stereotypes on many levels. How did that feel? And,
2: you know, I
1: didn't think of it like that. (laughs) You're talking about not having many African-American writers pushed out in the forefront. So not only did you do that, there weren't many books about African-American issues or or race issues. And here you are. It's your first book. You're an African-American writer. You're a young woman. And Mm -hmm. you come up with a book dealing with some really tricky subjects. I mean, that's busting down those gates, Angie. You never thought of it this way?
2: No, I didn't. And I, I, you know, but I, I'm okay with that. Um, because that would have probably put too much pressure on the book. I will say there are like so many black authors who had they not done what they done, I wouldn't have been able to do what I did. And, and even in children's literature, like I, I if Walter Dean Myers didn't exist, the hate you give would have never existed. You know what I mean? And, and knowing that people had done so many, um, things before me, and knocked down doors already, it helped. It gave me the the bravery to do that story. But I will say, like, when I was writing it, I wasn't worried about, oh, maybe I got too many curse words in the book. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about, oh, maybe I'm covering too many, you know. And, right. so, and I still, even now, I try not to carry that with me. I don't want to put that kind of pressure on my books or on myself. So if it happens, though, yay. You know, I'm so happy with what The Hate you Give did. And I'm so happy with now with what On the Come Up is doing. And I'm going to be so happy with what my third book does. But it's kind of like when you have kids. You just let them go out in the world. And if they get in Harvard, yay. <laughs> yeah. But if that kid just becomes a t- truck driver, yay, at least you're a productive human being. You know what? I have a
1: feeling that your kids are all going to be Ivy Leaguers. Just saying. <laughs>
2: just saying. I'm cool with them going to community college.
1: <laughs> well, here's my question. So when you wrote the, the Hate You Give, and we're going to go to the come up in just a second, what was the one thing that was most important for you to convey? And do you feel like that message was received?
2: Um, for me, I think the most important thing for me to convey, and it feels like a very basic thing to say, and it's sad that we're even at this point as a country, but I wanted to convey the humanity of Black kids. Tell me more about that. They don't get that a lot. If Khalil was a real person, people would have seen him more as a thug than they would have seen him as a child. I I wanted to convey the innocence of black kids. I wanted to convey that they are still kids. They are still children. Black girls don't get the benefit of being seen as girls. People assume that they're young women and that they can handle so much more than their white counterparts. And that's why they get suspended more. They, they, they get in trouble more. People are quicker to call them fast. That's why when black girls go missing, the assumption is that it was something they wanted to do as opposed to people being afraid of what's happening to them. It's
1: terrifying that we're still in this situation, actually.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that for me, that was, that was the main thing was to show that black kids are kids. And they're human beings and they deserve to be seen as such so that, that was that was my main hope that's my hope with all of my books honestly i
1: think you've probably gotten that message from your fans and your readers i actually wanted to go back for just a second i wanted to ask you when you first went to the, the more privileged area to go to school was it tough for you when you first walked in and you were like did you feel like you were on a different planet regardless of color i mean at that age we're all trying to fit in because we're all in that Mm -hmm. weird, awkward, insecure stage. We all want to be liked. And, Mm -hmm. you know, kids can be pretty brutal. But when you're kind of going from your poorer neighborhood into a privileged neighborhood at that age, did you feel like you just went on
2: another planet? Like, what was that like? Oh, yeah, for sure. It felt like being on another planet. But I I think it it was like I said kind of earlier, it was a... Start realization it was an awakening and it made me realize how different the world could be for different people it was hard too because i did often feel like a fish out of water like i didn't belong there i had an experience in college what, what happened yeah um we were at one of my professors he held a christmas party at his house and he had a big tree with a huge pile of gag gifts underneath and you could randomly pick something, and you wouldn't know what it was. So it was like whoopee cushions and and silly strings, stuff like that, and stuff he wanted to get rid okay. of. So I'm the only black girl there, black person there. And when it's my turn, I randomly picked the gift, opened it, and it turned out to be a prescription drug book and a toy water gun. Okay. And the note said inside the drug dealer's starter kit. Oh, jeez. And, a, and of course, one of the white girls goes, Oh, my God. The black girl from the ghetto got this picture with kid. How funny. Oh, my God. <laughs> my professor looked so horrified. And some of my classmates, they laughed. Others looked horrified. But I was so angry.
1: Yeah, But I didn't say
2: anything. And it was mainly because I was so stunned, embarrassed. Yeah. I didn't really know what to say. But, like, I thought of all the comebacks I later. I can't
1: believe that. I'm so sorry that that happened. I'm almost embarrassed for them, for the people who are underrepresented. Unfortunately, at least from my perspective, if it's not intended maliciously, I feel a certain responsibility to educate them because it's ignorance. Well,
2: I, I get that. And I'm just, I've had to recently get to the point where I tell myself I'm not responsible. Oh, OK.
1: Um, but there's my question. Then how do we make this situation better? Because the unfortunate thing is with the way the world is going, if we don't Everyone, if we all don't take that responsibility to educate, how can we make this better?
2: Mm. Um, I think the one of the best ways to make it better is to just live our lives and tell our stories and, and control our narratives more. The, the reason that girl said that ignorant statement to me is because they haven't been they haven't seen better they don't know better and why is that because you have media you have stereotypes in the media you have um all of these different images of black people and and asian people that have been either so limited or or they've only fit into a certain box that people aren't going beyond those images so like i look at i look at racial bias and and how Narratives that have been put out there feeds and feed into that. When you only have movies that show young black men in a certain light, people are only gonna see young black men in a certain way. And so I think one of the best ways for us to fight it is through our creativity, as for artists, especially through our our art, whether that's through our music or our books or our films, whatever that may be, television, to take control of our narratives and tell the stories that represent us on a wider basis. And even if you're not an artist, I think if there are people in your life who they are ignorant and they need to be taught, and you want to take that on, teach them. Well, I won't have anything against that, but when it comes to like random people, no. <laughs> You know, like random strangers, no, that's on them. They need to learn and they need to take the time to learn. So if nothing else, you just tell them that's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard in my life. And make them think about that. <laughs> I don't have to pull you aside and tell you why it's stupid. And um, for you to think that all black people deserve to have a drug dealer starter kit. There are people in the hood who are hardworking and law abiding citizens. I don't have to pull you aside and tell you that. I can just tell you you're stupid and leave it at <laughs>
1: But going back to, you know, taking control of the narratives, I want to go to your second book on the come up. Tell me a little bit about the book, what it's about, what inspired you to write it? And what is it that you want to kind of get out as a follow up to The Hate You Give?
2: Yeah, On Become Up also takes place in the same neighborhood as The Hate You Give, but it's not a sequel or a spinoff. It's about a 16 year old girl named Brianna who wants to be a rapper like so many kids in neighborhoods like that. And her life has turned upside down when one, her mom unexpectedly loses her job. And two, a song she makes goes viral for all the wrong reasons. And she finds herself in the center of a controversy too big for her to control. But as her family situation gets worse, she's desperate to make it, even if it means becoming the very thing everyone's made her out to be. There are bits and pieces that I took from my own life and put in on the come up. Like when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a rapper. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It was something I failed at, but pursued regardless. You can pick it up anytime. Yeah. But no, no, the main reason I wanted to be a rapper was because it looked like that was the only way that people like me could make it. That's all I saw on television. Rappers, they had the money. They were successful. I, I didn't see a whole lot of doctors and lawyers from my neighborhood, at least, who were out there that looked like me. So hip hop seemed like a way out. I'm for for it does feel like that as well. So I put that in there. And then, too, when I was a teenager, when my mom lost her job, it really changed our entire lives and put us in crisis mode. And there are so many kids out there who it feels like every day is a crisis. Right. You right. know, so I wanted to speak to them as someone who's gone through that. Yeah, you found your voice. Now it's time to make some noise.
1: I love it. You're in media. You've been traveling the country. You've been hearing from readers. You've certainly done the media circuit. Do you see representation moving in the right direction?
2: Um, I think we are, but I think there's it, still so much more to do. There's always that fear of they're going to be like, oh, we've reached right. a quota. Also, even in publishing, I say this a lot about children's publishing especially, but i never want them to think that every book about a black kid or a kid of color has to be a, the hate and give. They, they don't have to deal with issues. Let black girls get with the ba- vampires and let her daddy talk to her about that. You know, can we have that? <laughs> um, can black kids fall in love? You know, can, can they have their happy, sappy stories just like anybody else? All of these tropes that people want to say they're tired of minorities haven't even had the chance to use them. right so i i hope that that's, that's been my fear is that we're, we're reaching a point where they're either like we've met the quota or they only expect a certain kind of narrative from us so i hope that that is not the case and that we can continue to push back against that so yeah i want black twilight all right. You know, I, like I said, I don't know how that'll go over with a black girl's daddy, but I would love to see, it tr- see them try.
1: Well, I think you're in a really good position to <laughs> write that. I'm just saying. You know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't make a difference if you're white, black, Asian. If you're a human being, you are a hundred million different things. You have a hundred million different experiences. You have a hundred million different stories. What are you writing on your third book now? Like, what are you working on? There's a lot I'm not able to say about it. So you're not writing for like a singing lobster?
2: No, no singing lobster. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. But um, my third book is also set in Garden Heights. It's not a sequel to either book, but the main character is someone my readers will know.
1: Okay. When can we expect that to come out?
2: Most likely February 2021. All right. We'll be waiting. I'm taking next year off from books. I have some other projects that I'm working on that I'm not able to talk about either. But, well, we are working on the On the Come Up movie, so that should be out hopefully next year. We're, we're still in the early stages, but we're working on that. I'm so excited
1: for you. That's going to be amazing. Thank you. If you had to pick one lesson that helped you through some of the hardest challenges with stereotype, either professionally or personally speaking, what was that one lesson that you hold dear?
2: It's one from my mom, and it's pretty straightforward and to the point like she is. What other people think of you is not your business. I like it. (laughs) That goes with stereotypes. That goes with criticism, all of it. What other people think of you is not your business. What that means is you take that power from them and you put it in yourself and you define yourself. What you think of you is the most important thing. That's awesome. I do love your mom where can people keep track of
1: you uh what are your social media handles
2: i'm on twitter way too much at angie c thomas all right all right i'm on instagram at angie thomas i have a facebook page that I don't update nearly enough angie thomas so quite a
1: few ways last question and this is sort of a signature line I represent, what do you represent? It could be literal, whatever you want to say. Fill in the blank, Angie.
2: I'm Angie Thomas, the author of The Hate You Give and On the Come Up. I represent the roses growing in the concrete. Great thanks to my guest, Angie Thomas, for kicking things off.
1: Thank you to my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Panero for his time, care, and talent. To Gracie Kong for her constant love and support. REFIN is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, be sure to stand up and represent.